0: This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's patreo dot com
1: Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM.
0: We're in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Let's go. Welcome, everyone, to Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise show. I'm your host, Norman Lau, and thank you for joining us once again for another episode in the conference room aboard the NX01. And we're incredibly excited this evening because we are recording our very first subspaced postcards episode for Warp 5. Now, subspaced postcards is a little nod to the enterprise episode Horizon. Thanks to Christopher Jones for giving us that tidbit of trivia, and we love Horizon because I think we've talked about Horizon pretty consistently for the last couple of episodes, but it's a great episode, so go watch it. So this past week, I put out a feeler to the fans on the Babel Conference, our Trek FM dedicated Facebook listeners page, and we received an overwhelming list of ideas from our fans, and we'd like to share several of these ideas with you. Now, I think you'll enjoy the topics we've chosen for this episode, and maybe maybe it will prompt you or inspire some of you to let us know what you'd like to hear in the future on the show. And for those listeners out there who sent us ideas and we didn't quite just get to them in this episode, please be patient with us because you had great ideas. And some of them may even show up in later episodes for their own focus because we just feel very strongly about some of that content. So thanks for listening, and thanks for all of your enthusiasm and support, and uh, I promise you we will get to those subjects uh, in future episodes. Now on a more somber note, as we record this episode, it's the evening of February 27th, and I am sure that many of you have been informed today about the passing of our very own beloved and revered Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock. And we will definitely discuss his passing and what it meant to us later on in the show. But we have a ton of great show ready for you and a lot of fun topics to discuss. So let's get down to it. We have back with us in the conference room our content coordinator, Will Nguyen, and he's present and accounted for, and I'm glad he's surviving his Andorian winter. Will, how are you?
1: It's good. It stopped snowing. So, I mean, that is a huge step forward. Uh, We still have all this snow and ice on the ground, but at least there's no new accumulation. So that's definitely a huge plus.
0: That sounds good. And um hopefully uh it won't be too long now before you get at least what above single digits.
1: Are you in double digits now, weather wise? Um I think we're about fifteen to twenty, which <laughs> feels like summer. Like that's how that's how cold it's been that when it reaches twenty, you're like, Ooh, I can go out right. grilling, I can wear a short sleeve shirt. Crack it's, the windows down in the car. Pretty ridiculous, down. actually.
0: Yeah. And back with us in his first broadcast from here in the conference room on the NXO-1, the man behind the Star Trek Horizon movie, Tommy Kraft. Tommy, how are you?
2: I am lovely. Thank you for having me. Actually, for the first time ever in the conference room.
0: Yeah. How do your legs feel? A little, uh, little stretched out? It's like kick back a little bit now? Oh,
2: yeah. It's great. And, you know, uh, the lighting is nice up in here. It's not that off blue color. So uh, I'm, I'm digging it.
0: You know, the cool thing about the conference room is that we have access now to some control panels where Hoshi can pipe us some, wait for it, subspaced postcards. That's right, because that's the topic of this episode. And I let's love get- how
1: when you say the conference room, it's like how a wrestling announcer would say, welcome to the octagon. But it's <laughs> like the conference room, just like every other conference room. (laughs) you got to make it sound at least a little bit interesting. It's as if we're talking about a conference room as if it never existed before, like the decon chamber. It's like we have something called the conference room that we can sit in now.
0: Well, for our (laughs) listeners, we have to make sure that this it's a very special image in their mind. So we are in the conference room, reading our very first subspace postcard. So from the Babel Conference, Davis Grayson sent us this idea to talk about, and it's a pretty cool topic because we've actually come up with this idea before, but since everyone's on board with it, we decided to throw this up as the number one point, and this is junior officers on the NX-01, a la the episode Lower Decks. So obviously, we've seen the bridge crew and the main staff, you have Archer, and you have to Paul, and Tripp, and Reed, and Mayweather, and so on and so forth, and Flox. Down in Medbay. But there is an entire ship with an entire crew complement of crewmen, non commissioned officers, and ensigns. And then eventually in season three, we'll have Makos. Would it not have been interesting to have seen an episode very much like the next generation's lower decks to try and just get a feel of what's going on, kind of like on the other side of the room? You know what I mean? And just to see. How these people are getting along, who they are, what do they do on a daily basis, who they interact with. Have you guys ever seen the uh, the fan film The uh, the Red Shirt Diaries?
1: I have not, but
0: I've heard of it. It's a really neat concept where the host of the show, and forgive me, I forget her name right now, but what happens is that she encounters the main crew in the off-screen capacity when they walk through a corridor or when they walk through... The mess hall, or where they go into a turbo lift, and I think that's kind of like would have been neat here to see all of these junior officers or crewmen or non-coms or even Makos start up conversations with the main crew or the main cast, and just see see the world in the enter- of the Enterprise in a different light. So, what do you guys think about that concept? How would you even consider doing something like that? And what characters would you like to see or bring in to an episode like Lower Decks for? Enterprise.
1: I think, obviously, Crewman Cutler, we just did an episode with her uh, about two weeks ago, and she, for me, is almost like the O'Brien of Enterprise, or could have been the O'Brien, so she's one of the premier or one of the the recurring characters that shoots up to the top of anyone's list, my list, certainly, in terms of recurring characters that could really fulfill that lower decks function, uh, and really illustrate that different perspective of, of the crew, so definitely crewman color. I would say. I, I remember in Lower Decks, remember Ben is the bartender, right, on, mm-hmm. in Ten Forward. So it'd be really interesting. I know that there was a running gag for a long time in Enterprise that we don't see Chef, right? But if they're, if they're supposed to do a Lower Decks episode, Chef could have been that pivot point. Chef could have been the Ben character in Enterprise where he interacts with both the senior crew, senior staff, but he also interacts well with the Lower Decks crew. So he's the pivot point, and he's the he's the relay point in terms of you know telling the lower deck crewmen's you know what the senior officers might be thinking or providing that perspective that they might not be seeing because they're actually uh, the senior staff is their commanding officers. The chef possibly could <clears throat> be a civilian that is outside of that chain of command that everyone could talk to and could be open with. So I think chef would have obviously been a great addition to that type of episode uh elizabeth cutler absolutely and for the remaining spots it could really just be open um in terms of the the creators coming up with their own characters to fill that slot and hopefully it would carry on just beyond hopefully one episode you know lower decks unfortunately was just one episode but ideally if they were to do this approach i'd like to at least see it stretched out to a few episodes that you you check in with this crew or this second, um, the lower decks part of the crew, you know, once or twice every season. I think that'd be really great.
2: I think some of the problem is there just aren't enough, uh, at this point, there aren't enough people on Enterprise, other characters that aren't the main cast, that we could focus on. So they'd have to be written, we'd have to come up with some. And I think the show that really did this the best was Deep Space Nine. When you think about the number of really good characters they had on that show that weren't regulars, you had Ducat, you had Garrick, you had Nog, Ram, um, what's-her-face, uh... Zial? Well, yeah, Zial, too. I was thinking also of Ram's wife. Um, Lita? Oh, Lita. Yeah, Lita. That's right. All I could think of was her real name. Um... And uh, probably some others, and then of course you had the founders uh, and other characters that I probably can't think of. The Klingons, for example, you had Martok, Martok Gauron. Um, yeah. The, it's just they had a lot of really great recurring characters that they could focus on that weren't necessarily main cast and. I wish more shows, not just Star Trek or Enterprise, but I wish more shows would do this in general because there is this tendency to focus on like the the core five to ten main characters and nothing else, and then it feels like you have a ship of a thousand people where only eight people are the ones that ever do the work, and so I think it would have been nice if they could have just had little people that they would they would. They, they, <laughs> Not to say I wish they had little people, they, that well, could little people yeah, with, that could like, be fine. Yeah, that could be fine too. But little roles mm-hmm. that they could throw in from time to time, where if you're a fan of the show, you recognize, hey, this is crewman so and so. They were in it a few episodes ago, etc. Instead of just random extra of the week, and also on top of that, I just think what would be a really interesting Star Trek show, uh, just to throw it out there, is a show that focuses not on the captain and the main crew but like an ensign or a lieutenant or maybe something along the lines of the Elite Force video game where you had the hazard team and it focused on them instead of the main crew uh but uh yeah I just think the that would be one of my main complaints in Enterprise is that they just didn't do really enough with the lower decks
0: well when I was watching lower decks earlier one of the cool things was is that it really did like 90 percent of the episode was really about these fresh-faced young officers and letting them interact in a very official capacity with their reports, their direct reports, or their superior officers. And I think that we started to see that a little bit with Crewman Cutler, because she was working with Dr. Flock so closely. I think this would have been a really good opportunity for Crewman Daniels to have ingratiated himself with even some of the younger officers like hoshi and travis and that would have given you the opportunity to flesh out their characters a little bit better and to even possibly weave in an underpinning of what was going on with this temporal cold cold war because you got to see daniels a little bit more and in not such a clandestine capacity where all of a sudden dun 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 daniels comes in and major plot point has to be dropped in there because anytime you see him It's about the temporal Cold War. It would have been really cool to have seen him earlier just kind of weave his way in there as this any name crewman doing things here and there. I mean, he was kind of serving uh, in the almost like a yeoman capacity to Archer in his ready room, um, serving him breakfast and whatnot for chef. So that would have been a neat thing just to be able to kind of flesh that character out a little bit more and not have him so heavy so early on, you know, as this focal point for the temporal cold war
2: daniels was one of my biggest complaints in that regard because i always thought it, like you said it would have been really cool if even if it was only one or two episodes before episode 10 where he was first revealed if you just saw him bring archer's meal and that's it, that could have been all they needed was just you know daniels brings archer's meal in episode two or whatever and then right. you see in episode 10 oh wait there's something more to this guy
0: well, if it looks like a red herring and it smells like a red herring, it eventually will be a red herring. You
1: know, so... is <laughs> that the first time a, a male was depicted as a yeoman?
0: Uh, Well, at least in the progression of Enterprise to the original series, I think so. Yeah. But again, it would have been neat because uh, for Daniels to have been this very vanilla-esque type character... That reported back to Chef, and then if you wanted to do Chef as a character, the dialogue between Daniels and Chef would have been really cool because now you got That's to true. see the off-camera reaction to what was going on after a conversation between, say, T'Pol, Tripp, and Archer or Vanek, you know, when during mm-hmm. um, uh, the the, uh, the a Comet episode, the Breaking the Ice episode. Yeah. So that would have been pretty interesting. It doesn't
2: have to but be I'll, a Red Herring, though, either, when you think about it. If they had really committed to the idea of a lower decks character group of characters daniels could have just been one of them he could have just been one of those other like nameless not necessarily nameless but one of those other ensigns or crewmen that you see from time to time and nobody would have thought more of it because they'd have a number of those characters and then well well, the
0: payoff would have been better you know right exactly that's what i'm saying yeah for sure yeah Uh, and it would have been also neat not just to see crewmen from Starfleet but when they brought the makos in yeah. I agree Tommy it would have been really neat just to have had a mako centric focused episode very much like uh, when Picard uh, the four lights episode I, gosh I can't I'm terrible with these episode names but uh, chain of command chain of command yeah. part 1 and 2 it would have been neat to have seen it from like that infiltration style episode From the point of the makos, and even have Major Hayes kind of like as the leader of that episode, right? Versus like, um, versus one of the Starfleet officers. That would have been really cool. What do you think?
2: I think that would have been great. And I think a lot of this is just part of the, a lot of it has to do with the time the Enterprise was being made. Where if you watch most shows nowadays, like really current shows, they're constantly developing. Uh, Sub stories, B stories, C stories of the series. Whereas even ten, fifteen years ago, TV shows tended to be much more standalone. They didn't tend to develop these stories over time that the fan would recognize, but the average viewer wouldn't care about. For instance, Hoshi and Travis. You know, we, we're told that they have that they're friends. We see them talking like once or twice. But they could have really developed that for the fans and they never did. And I think that's just a lot of that is a byproduct of the end of the last era of TV where things always had to be much less serialized.
1: And I feel like it's also a product of the public and popular perception of Star Trek of of having those weekly adventures and really only Deep Space Nine. And, you know, Enterprise had those arcs as well later on, but definitely the first season the first two seasons really you could just tell enterprise was you know it had to serve three or four different masters yeah and you know the fact that there's it's still surprisingly good despite the fact that it really had to, to service often competing objectives you know speaks volumes but yeah i mean it it definitely is you know from the get-go they have the temporal cold war from the broken bow but then every other episode for a while is up till episode 10 right? yeah and it's just you know where are they going with this and i feel like they were from the get-go they were just dealt a really bad hand
2: you mentioned ds9 and i that ds9 suffered from the same problem of they weren't willing to fully commit to developing overarching stories because even like i remember when i was rewatching ds9 not long ago and season seven it's like the beginning of season seven, Dominion War, and the entire rest of the season up until like the last eight episodes, nothing. And I think the story really suffers from that because you lose the feeling of like this real, this really epic wartime, like everybody's in danger, et cetera. And it's the same, and it goes down to even less stories too of developing relationships and characters for for the crewmen and what have you. And DS Nine did do that well, but I think Enterprise really kind of it would have fit Enterprise perfectly, considering how small the ship is. That's why I wish they would have done it, because you had such a great opportunity for like this first small band of explorers, where you would know everyone's
1: name, because that's the kind of ship it is. Right. I I don't want to again go, get off on too much of a tangent. Yeah. <laughs> I think they do ramp it. They do ramp it up in the last you know ten episodes, and I feel like you know there is a balance. There's for me, something that's super serialized is tough for me to rewatch. So I love Battlestar Galactica. I love Breaking Bad. But it's so rare for me to just, hey, I'm going to put on an episode of Breaking Bad. Right, because you ESG have to watch the whole thing. Because you'll pull exactly. yourself out of the flow. Right, Exactly. But for something like Deep Space Nine, it's literally my favorite show because I could literally put it on all the time. And you could jump in on any random episode and you can get the deeper story if you want. Or you can have a standalone episode. So it it adds a rewatchability that sometimes a super serialized show, like Better Call Saul, like I I just can't watch, you know, the second episode and just, you know, turn that on.
2: I just wish they would address these overarching storylines more throughout the course of a season. It doesn't necessarily have to be every episode is completely tied to the next. But like with the temporal cold war, it was like episode one. Then nothing until episode ten, and then nothing, nothing until the season finale, and yeah, it, that's fair. it's the same thing with the crewmen too. You know, we saw Cutler twice, and even before she passed away, they had an entire season where they could have used her, and season two, yeah, yeah, and they didn't. And so I, I just, I don't know why some of those choices were made. And like I said, something, some of it could be due to the time when the show was made, um, but it's things I think could have benefited the show.
0: Well, the overarching story format was, that was a new thing. And a lot, I'm sure the studios, when they took a look at that, the proposition for that will be like, that sounds really good, but I'm not sure if it's going to tie in the viewers. So that, right. I, I think there's always a risk. That's, that, that just goes you know straight to a numbers game when it comes to production of the show.
2: Well, it's because it's what the average audience doesn't want, and the studio knows that. Because your, your typical average audience member is going to come home after a long day at work, and they just want to put something on.
0: Right, they just want to pop something on TV right. and not have to worry about but you're gonna where ha- they are in the show. Yeah, you're going to
2: have a much harder time getting viewers if they have to stay completely caught up on a show every week, and if they can't tune in to Season 5 and just know what's going on.
0: You know, I think that probably the storyline, the way that they wanted to do it for Enterprise would be a little bit more successful now because I think they've actually had more successes with these overarching... Yeah, I would agree. I mean, agree. these long seasons, these long overarching seasons, especially with something like a Breaking Bad or a Battlestar. But, you know, we could that's, that's for a completely <laughs> other podcast. So in wrapping up this first point, my last personal pet uh, request for an episode like this was to see... Rock Ingersoll joined the Makos because I love Guy Fleegman from Galaxy Quest and I think he deserved a shot at defending the Enterprise NXL1. So just for me. Who? Rock Ingersoll, security chief. Oh, the uh, NESA um, protector. <laughs>
2: Uh, Sam Rockwell right yeah oh, oh I love Sam Rockwell
0: to be on Enterprise. and when everyone <laughs> when, when this podcast drops people are gonna be like yeah and they're gonna have the exact same thing. they're gonna be like oh my gosh yes I love Rock Ingersoll who oh
1: yeah. man so
0: all right and he has so, like the
1: mustache too so we'll have him audition um, be- I mean, it's not like he's a big movie star anymore. Like, right. Yeah, Enterprise, yeah, I'll Sam totally Rolico. do that. Okay.
2: It's not like he got, like, you know, main villain in Iron Man 2 or anything, because, you know, I'm sure he, he could afford our budget, or we could afford him, I should say.
0: The most important thing to have on your show is a villain who can do a nice little soft chew from one side <laughs> to the stage to the other, because that's talent, my friends.
1: That's true. That's true. That was a great scene.
0: So, speaking of talent, getting on to our next subspace postcard, Jay Christian also from the Babel Conference, requested if we could talk about people, talent, that auditioned for the show and didn't make it, or if someone was repurposed for another character. So here are a couple of interesting tidbits I was able to dig up from the interwebs. Could you imagine Admiral Forrest, Von Armstrong, as Saval? Whoa. Because he, yeah, because he auditioned for the role of Saval.
1: I actually did not know I that. I can see that. Yeah. Because uh, I I haven't read the actual Memory Alpha article, but I do remember uh, reading somewhere that Von Armstrong has actually played a lot of Trek characters.
0: A lot of aliens too, right? A lot of
1: aliens, and yeah. he can lose himself in a lot of those roles. Obviously, a Vulcan is less prosthetics than some of his other roles, but I I, I think I remember reading that Von Armstrong is you know kind of like the Jeffrey Combs. In a way of of really coming up in a lot of these these recurring roles and people don't really realize that's him. And he just does a really terrific job losing himself in those roles, so to speak. So I could see it, but I mean Gary Graham is pretty amazing as Saval, so I don't know. I could be biased by that, but I mean, you know, if we were to rewrite history, like I could I could see Von Vaughn pulling it off.
0: Someone out there for our listeners group is going to have to do a really cool Photoshop and yeah. post it online and just to see the difference between, you know, Von Armstrong in his Admiral Forrest uniform and maybe just a nice headshot of him wearing Saval's robes and vice versa, having Gary Graham uh, without makeup and taking a headshot of his and putting it in the Admiral's uniform for Starfleet. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, that would be. Just because they're so transfixed in those characters for the show, it's hard to kind of like mentally... Um, Change, you know, change the order there. So that'd be kind of neat.
2: Another fun tidbit is Rico Anderson, who's actually in uh, Star Trek Renegades. Uh, he plays one of the, what are they, a the siphon or something like that? Uh, the, the guys with all the huge makeup. Uh, and he also plays a Vulcan ambassador in Horizon, my film. Um, oh, fantastic. Yeah, he auditioned for Travis back in the day.
0: Now, how far did wow. he
2: get? Uh I don't. Do you know? I actually don't know because um, I just remember it was either him or Ryan Husk. I th- one of them was telling me that he auditioned for Travis, uh, and that that's actually all I know. <laughs> but that's the fun fact.
0: No, that's that's very cool. And during the auditioning process for Enterprise, I know from watching. The news footage from when Enterprise was first released. I mean, there was an open casting call, and there were a lot of actors and actresses applying for the roles. And one of the, and I, I don't want to say this in a bad way, but one of the probably most most pivotal casting decisions they had to make is for the captain. You know, and I know that Scott Bakula wasn't everyone's most resounding yay. For, you know When they released the information on who's playing who for Enterprise, probably because everyone now we've done Archer before we've done Archer in the last two consecutive, almost nearly consecutive episodes. But I remember the fans didn't really kind of scream out, oh, my gosh, we finally got the captain that we wanted in this period. Mm-hmm. There was another actor that was considered for the role. And would you believe that he is a British actor or was a British actor because he passed away? And he was most famous in the 1980s for a fantastic cult classic TV show called Manimal. That actor's name is Simon McCorkendale.
1: Have you guys heard of him? No. Uh, they should have kept his actual name and made him the captain. Like Captain McCorkindale. McCorkindale should, should have been the first uh, Federation captain. Should, that, that should have been the first Earth captain right there. And when That's I grew a great up, name. I've actually never heard about him actually going up for this role, but McGorkendale, like, that is way better than Archer. Like, that's you,
0: amazing. <laughs> you've definitely seen him before on TV, and I'm a child of the 80s, so I kind of grew up with seeing a lot of his performances. He's been on shows like The Dukes of Hazard, Fantasy Island, I'm sure he was on Love Boat if he was on those two shows, Heart to Heart, Dynasty, and then he's in one of my all-time favorite cult classic movies called The Sword and the Sorcerer. So, If you Googled him or if any of the listeners want to Google him, you'll be like, oh, that guy. I remember that guy. And he's a very distinguished actor. He has a very interesting, British, polished, poised kind of way about him. But maybe that wasn't what they needed for Archer because Simon always came off as being very experienced. And I think what they were looking for with Archer was someone who was kind of fumbling. Because you don't want an experienced captain out there. You want somebody who's struggling because... Again, as we said in our previous show, how can you prepare for what's out there in deep space? You can't. You know, you can't be like, oh, of course I knew that was going to happen because that's just really unrealistic. But I, I'm I'm glad that you guys haven't heard of him because he he was fantastic in the 1980s and 1990s. And he may have been a little too old for the part of Archer, but he was a very distinguished actor. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be like, oh, let me Google this guy and see what's going on. And they'll probably be like, yeah he may have been a little bit too far past the role. So here's um, my question.
1: If he was going for the role, was Archer always supposed to be, you know, American, the son of Henry Archer or were they, or if they were going to hire him, were they going to rewrite the role around him and his natural background as an actor, you know, British, more seasoned. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that, that's interesting. Would you have you know, attempted to kind of mold himself into what they wanted Archer to be or to be the reverse that they would mold the role after him.
0: I would think that they already had the vision of Archer in mind and right. he is an actor of a certain caliber that knows how to f- mask his accent or he would have had a dialogue coach to help with that. Um, I don't know, Tommy, what do you think? That's a pretty cool question, huh?
2: I think that honestly, they probably just would have rewritten it in terms because it wouldn't, it wouldn't change that the character that much to have him be of british descent so i think and that's usually the better choice than to have somebody try to mask their accent and not as
1: crazy as a british man trying to be french right
2: <laughs> is that a reference <laughs> to something
1: it, it's uh captain picard, picard. Right? oh, uh, oh no i get what you're oh, yeah. Picard. Yeah. it still cracks me up how like it's like the most english frenchman possible it just cracks me
2: up you know the funny thing is, I never even gave it a thought. That's why when you said that, I was like, "What? What do you mean?
1: Huh?" <laughs> like, I, I guess. Like, does he ever speak French? I don't think I've ever seen him speak French.
2: You know the thing—the guy is just so incredible <laughs> that, like, I, I just assumed that, like, he probably spoke every language known.
1: So. <laughs> That's also probably true.
2: And you know, the whole thing, it's like 24th century. Sure, why not, British Frenchman? But
0: uh, well, that would have been if we if we cast Simon. That would have had, we would have had two Brits. That's true. On the bridge. And that would have been kind of interesting, too. And, and we all know the, uh, the, the, the proud tradition of the British heraldry in the Royal Navy. So that would have, that could have made sense, you know, with the archer always having served in some capacity or another in the Navy.
2: Yeah. I mean, that would have changed the character a lot for sure. Uh, if he had always been like, you know, come from this long line of Navy people and he was like this staunch Navy man, you know, uh, I I I definitely prefer the archer that we had the much more uh green archer.
0: Speaking of green, <laughs> cuz I love forcing segues into my show.
1: <laughs> oh, that was that was too perfect.
0: I know, right? <laughs> Colonel Green was a very iconic villain in the original series and they were thinking about bringing him into Enterprise. And would you believe that Peter Weller was considered for this particular character before they changed him, this character, to John Frederick Paxton.
2: I'd believe it. I could definitely see him playing that role. And he did just as good a job as Paxton, too. And I liked the way they wrote that as Colonel Green being an inspiration for Paxton. I thought that made a lot of sense. And it probably fit the timeline a little better as well.
0: Well, the Disciple, the sensibility is the same. So the motivation for right. acting is pretty much the
1: same, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this one is definitely an an easy fit. I mean, it speaks volumes that, you know, Peter Weller was Admiral Marcus in Into Darkness. You know, he's playing this, this villain role, and I think it's funny because, you know, the role he's most known for is Alex Murphy as Robocop, but it mm-hmm. seems like all the work he's been doing lately is, you know, villains, right? So he was a villain in 24. He was a villain in Into Darkness. He was a villain here in Terra Prime and Demons. You know, it, he's really good at it. Obviously, he has, you know, that just, he just seems like someone you don't want to mess with, right? Get on his your bad side or his bad side. So I think this is something that I could definitely see. I will say, though, that watching uh, Terra Prime and Demons, when you see Paxton watching that video clip of Colonel Green, the actor who they have playing Green in that video looks really, you know, it looks a lot like, you know, the version of green in the savage curtain like his facial structure his ears like they clearly manny koto was like man we should find some guy that looks like a younger version or somehow related to green i mean obviously that continuity uh branches what he was aiming for but i always thought that was one of those uh really cool continuity moments where only obsessive fans would really understand and appreciate how mm-hmm. similar their faces looked right in a definite nod to the old TOS episode.
0: Now, it's it's hard to do this after the fact and I love like all the characters that uh you know and all of the casting choices in Enterprise now because I'm used to it and and I know the characters pretty um I guess intimately in a way because I've watched them so many times and that happens over the course of watching a, a series and falling in love with the series. But are there any choices that you still feel could have been different? Or do you see an actor now that could have been, you know what, 10 years ago I would have cast him as Reed or as Travis or as Trip? Or do you think they made the right choices at the time? I know hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's really hard to kind of retcon that, but anything stick out to you? That you feel like you still would like to change. Samuel Jackson is Travis. Just saying. <laughs> are you telling me that there MF sn- and <laughs> snakes on my MF and warp five ship?
2: Exactly. Talk about just. <laughs> and when he's talking to the the what is it, the the guys who who uh, who don't like to watch people eat, you know, Travis is the only one on the bridge, and they come on the view screen, <laughs> and Travis says to the, the English mother effer, "Do you speak
1: it?" <laughs> that's true I, I feel like that that'd be the classic role of just he's just doing the show a favor it's just like I'm just you know who I am and I'm right. just going to play I mean obviously it's know I mean, we've discussed on the show before it's really unfortunate that Travis didn't really have much to do but it would have been hilarious in hindsight <laughs> that they had an actor like Samuel L. Jackson and they still they still <laughs> treated him like they treated Anthony Montgomery and yeah. In actual enterprise, like they literally didn't do anything with him. They just sitting there, like, yep, impulse speed. Got it, Captain. Like, n- <laughs> nothing else changes. I tell
0: you what, I would totally Kickstarter or like a remastered version of Travis's scenes if they could have Samuel L. Jackson <laughs> hang upside down in the sweet spot.
1: It would be like the easiest paycheck. He would literally like phone it in, just like, yep, I'm just here, sitting here. Yeah. The great
2: thing about Samuel L. Jackson phoning it in is it's still awesome.
1: It is, yeah. That's not taking anything away, exactly.
0: So, would that mean that in Intermirror Dark Leads Part 1 and 2 that we would have Travis with an eye patch? Wow. Because that would be is pretty cool.
1: this? That would be. <laughs> That's true. But I will say that I was a big fan of Travis's high top fade in Intermirror Dark Leads. No, that like, was a really that nice That is touch. a great look. I was like, man, yeah. that is fresh print status. That's bringing it back. Like, it, that was a good look. You know what that was?
0: That was his go team moment, <laughs> That's
1: just like true. Cisco. Or When's Saval, this go- who has a goatee yeah. and is a science crewman, <laughs> randomly like, hey, okay, like, okay.
0: Well, Vulcans always have goatees in the mirror universe. That's, that's a, like, that's, that's that's like a law or something like that. Is it because yeah. it's like illogical to have facial hair in the prime universe? Good question. Will, write that down. That is a definite write that down. topic well, I gotta research for conversations. That. <laughs> Vulcan facial hair in the prime universe versus facial hair oh, in the mirror universe. That's actually that's a good point. I don't, don't think we've ever
2: seen one in the prime universe that has facial hair, have we?
0: No. Mm-mm. Because I think it's illogical for them to have that. There's no reason for it, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not like they'd have a soup catcher or something like that. Well, I mean, you if you're gonna go with that logic,
2: what's the point of hair in general?
0: Well, yeah. Well, Just I'm surprised that, that Vulcans aren't bald.
1: Yeah. You
0: know. Well, this one out of tangent. Some kind of diplomatic statement. I don't know. All don't Vulcans so. have to have bowl
1: cuts, right? <laughs> like that's yes. clearly like that's another thing. Like they all have to have the same haircut it just gets to me like i just can't i tell you what a good oh, uh, a really
0: not a, a really not good paying job in that universe is being a vulcan barber i would like the number one cut please i would like the number one cut please i would like the number one cut
2: please in keeping with the <laughs> lower decks the ba- the vulcan barber you know that could be the recurring character
0: who's the name of the what's the name of the barber on um on the next generation because he was the, the and right? Mr. Mott. That's Mr. right. Mr. Mott. Yeah. Mr. Mott. And everyone talked to him that he would have been a great lower decks type of character. Yeah. You're right. Yeah.
1: See, actually, again, I'm going on another tangent here, but we've never really seen, you know, like I hate to use the word, but like an underachieving Vulcan, right? Vulcans are science <laughs> officers, they're engineers, right? But like <laughs> What do you do with Vulcans? I just want to hang out and just like I don't want to be in the Science Academy. I don't want Aren't to they join. Called Star Romulans?
0: Oh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> what was that?
1: Yeah, are they Romulans? called Romulans? <laughs> no, but Romulans are like, but, but they're like the opposite. But like, they're also super talented and devious, and they're like generals and proconsuls and yeah, senators. they just kill everyone. Just like, just like a like a Vulcan. that's just like yeah, I just want to hang out. I want to be a barber. I want to be a bartender. Like you don't see that, right? I I just think it's so interesting. Okay, so I all have for- to be like. <laughs> The best of the best, or they're really good at science. It's just like, are all throw of them this. good? I don't know.
0: I'm going to throw this into the next subspace postcard because Nathaniel Canner asked us speculation on plot points that have been explored in future seasons if the show hadn't been canceled. And I know that we're making light of this about about kind of like the uh, the average Vulcan, but there were those Vulcans out there, um, like in in the episode where. Where uh, T'Pol was forced into the mind meld, and th- they weren't the science Vulcans; they weren't the officer Vulcans. Yeah, they that's were a good point. Like, actually, yeah, they were going out there and becoming explorers of the universe, i.e., expanding their minds through the Vulcan mind meld, which was um, pretty much an outlawed practice and a deviant in a deviant art in in the eyes of the Vulcan High Command. So you actually have them out there. They're not, ex- you know, they're not of the science officer type. So, would it be possible if we ran into that ilk again and what would you do? You know, what would T'Pol do because T'Pol was violated by that sect, if you will.
2: It all comes back to the lower decks. Once again, we only tend to see in TV show like the few the, the few mains that make everything happen. And I think that's really unfortunate because there's a lot of potential in all of these alien societies and in the case of the lower decks of the enterprise crew to see different parts of to see the goings-on in these different parts of their societies that we don't ever get to see and i wish like some star trek show at some point doesn't even have to be enterprise what if would have done a little more with that what what is what what do the people who aren't the top tier on Vulcan do what what I mean do they even have artists I mean obviously they do but that's not very logical so yeah it would be nice
1: to see that there's a very potential dark there are very potentially dark implications of a very strict quote-unquote meritocracy or uh Pursuit of logic to the exclusion of everything else. So, you know, if you don't meet with the expectations of that society, if you don't fit a need that they need, you know, there's some dark implications in terms of do they just cast aside these people? Or are they just considered an undesired, you know, cast of people? Do they, are they viewed differently if they're just not a productive member of Vulcan society and they're not doing all these noble grand things, right? Like, it's very interesting. And, you know, you can extrapolate that to Starfleet, too. I mean, you you see the same I, in Next Generation. I feel like it's the it's ramped up to its zenith in terms of Enterprise is the best and the brightest. Right. Everyone is at top of their game. Everyone wants right. to be there. But like, what if you're just average, Not, quote, unquote, like, quote unquote, average? Right. How do you survive in that universe? And let alone on Starfleet, how do you are you just an average officer? Like, how does that? work are these the ships that
0: that get destroyed during the dominion war it's very (laughs) true
1: they absolutely get destroyed or wolf 359
0: (laughs) yeah or wolf yeah wolf 359 no but it's an interesting point because we don't get a chance to see who aren't the best and the brightest now let's take it to star trek the motion picture when spock refuses to finish culinor what what happens i mean is he completely rejected by the vulcan science academy I mean, it's OK for him to go back to Starfleet, but is that in their eyes a lesser pursuit because he didn't finish purging his um, purging the entirety of emotion from from his being
1: at the colon, process? I feel like probably because Sarek totally chewed out Spock for joining Starfleet, right, as opposed to the Science Academy. So even if I feel like if he is giving him the third degree on that, if. He doesn't even finish Colinar. Like I feel like that would definitely put him on you know Sarah's bad side, right? Well, I mean, it's one of those things where
0: it's well, sadly, we'll never see something like that. But yeah, but it's just an interesting thing. I, I agree with Tommy what you're saying that it's probably off-putting to fans sometimes when you only get to see the best and the brightest, and you don't get to see. Just kind of like the normal crewman who goes about his day-to-day routine, brushes his teeth, goes to his duty station, does a pretty good job. Maybe gets chewed out by a supervisor. I mean, is that what we have possibly have seen on the Columbia? Because the Columbia was another... Oh, look at that
1: segue! <sighs>
0: oh, thank you. <laughs> Did you like that? That's <laughs> pretty smooth. That was just... No, but- I didn't see that one coming. That was (laughs) good. But no, so like going into the Columbia, the Columbia has a pretty green crew as well. They could probably read the captain's logs or the logs of the superior officers, you know, like Trip and Topal and Reed for their their counterparts on the Columbia. But there's for all intents and purposes, they're new. So what happens there? Is that an interesting storyline to follow?
2: Probably not. It probably just... I mean, in terms of what the writers would have chosen, they probably wouldn't have. It probably would have just been pushed aside like the lower decks of the Enterprise crew. And when you think about how it was handled, uh, the 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 bridge crew of the NX-01, they were all newbies too when they started. But uh, I just don't really know what I'm trying to say. I just don't think they would have really focused on it that much with Columbia.
1: Uh, yeah, I think with, with Columbia, there's two things. There's there's a serious point to be made, and there's a there's a funny point to be made. I think the the funny point to be made is it'd be hilarious if the entire crew of the NX-02 were literally the second choices for all the spots <laughs> in the NX-01. Like, they're literally the runner-ups the, from Captain on down to the crewman. It's the, all the ones that didn't make an NX-01. So they're literally like the second string like the b team in every definition
0: the the nxo2 is the the ship the also rans, yeah if you will <laughs> you know but you know what that's it, it and it, as funny as that is it's not There's necessarily untrue exactly. you know yeah. i mean yeah why not have the second best because that second best it's still it's still first place in some in someone's mind right <laughs> you know it's it's
1: that's, that's a, the motto on their patch <laughs> <laughs> we number two is still, su- still first place in some It's just a guy, it's just a person on a second <laughs> pedestal, just like somewhere we're first place.
0: <laughs> well it's not the NXO one, it's the NXO two. Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> no.
0: I think really though, um the Columbia would have been the type of episode appearance where it would just be the bailout episode, like we need help. Yeah. Bring in the NXO two or vice versa. The NXO two has gone off into uncharted space, they're doing their mission and the enterprise is somewhat close by, so they need a helping hand, or they need to join forces and create like a giant stable warp field and <laughs> have people move back and forth. No wait, they've done they've done that already. So I love um, how
1: in uh, the few scenes you see the NXO two, like the only difference between the bridge and the NXO one is on the side huge of huge conduits. There's those two pillars yeah. that just. Glow like that's the like the light pulse. Like, what role does that play? You know what I'm talking about, Tommy? Oh yeah, it plays it's, the role at the end of These Are the Voyages. Exactly, ex- ex- <laughs> <laughs> they put that in the future NXO. <laughs> I'm like, what does this huge pillar do? Like, I don't get it. Like, how is this an evolution?
2: <laughs> in fact, when I was considering when I was modeling the bridge for the NXO Four Discovery and Horizon, I considered whether or not I should put those in because they were on the <laughs> NXO Two. But then I thought, you know, they, oh. they, really, they really are just there to make the bridge look slightly different. There's no possible purpose they
1: could serve. Uh, what if they just extrapolated that in every deck of the nxo 2 there's just a random pillar in the hallway <laughs> that just flashes a light? I was oh, so man.
0: believing that it had something to do with structural integrity and boosting the dampening field. But forget you guys. You guys are wow! That's, all of that's
1: an excellent TNG explanation. I actually thought plasma. it was warp plasma
0: <laughs> because you would
2: totally want to route that through the back of the bridge in plain sight. But yeah, no.
1: well, of
0: course you do. You know, if but that means that if you have extra warp plasma injectors, you would need another engineer on the bridge to make sure that they're always aligned. Well, Come there on. is
2: an engineering station on the bridge that rarely gets used. So that's true.
0: Tommy, you solved it all. <laughs> See, I'm a writer. <laughs> this is what I do. So what about say let's go back to to the unexplored plot points and and look at a little bit at where we were headed with the Romulan war especially with like the Babel arc because they're I mean I really I know some people didn't like the whole drone thing but I thought that was a really interesting plot device where the Romulans are out there they're using the drone because they obviously don't want to dirty their hands they're making it look like all these other ships are attacking all these other allies or vice versa and they're starting to fear what's happening with all the other races and I thought that they were doing a good job with it and obviously we're not going to get it but season 5 has always kind of been hinted towards the Romulan war and the season 5 uh, excuse me the season 5 Enterprise campaign on Facebook kind of is trending that way with the the refit of the NX-01 and and the movement towards the Romulan war so that seems like a logical progression from season four, don't you think? I think Manikota would have been able to drive it that way pretty well.
2: Yeah, I think so. I just, the only thing is the time frame. I mean, because these are the voyages took place pretty much probably like a year, give or take, after the end of the Romulan War. And Demons in Terror Prime was about 10 years before that episode. So you have like this 10-year gap that you'd have to jump, give or take, And so I mentioned this once uh, with Chris on Warp 5 that I think what would have been really interesting is if they encountered some sort of anomaly or temporal vortex and the ship was sucked, you know, five or so years into the future and then the show just continues on from there and they never get that five years back. It's like a a kind of a reset for Season 5 where... You can jump into the middle of the Romulan War. Because realistically, with only three seasons left, there's no way they could have covered the whole war. So they would have had to do something. They would have had to skip some time.
0: Well, Will, you're a, you're a Battlestar Galactica fan, right? And, they, and the fans pretty much—I remember that happened at the end of season one to season two. And the fans pretty much swallowed that hook, line, and sinker that the surrender of the colonial fleet to the camps was one year. Yeah, you know, it, I think that's where, right. Well, where, where Baltar took his presidency, because it literally was it, a, on, was it a year fast forward. I think it was it was like on on screen. The subtitle said like one year later, and yeah. I'm sitting there. I'm like, how do you jump twelve months like and and have people buy that storytelling wise?
2: They did that too, though, in Alias. I mean, uh, there's like yeah. seasons two or three or something like that. They just jumped two or three like two or three years into the future, and it worked yeah. with Battlestar too because it provides you. This way, where you can essentially reset everything, and it gives you all these new stories to tell of trying to figure out, oh, well, how did we get from where we were to where we are now?
0: Are you saying it's been a long road getting from there to here? <laughs> it
1: has. Oh, that was that was set up mm. perfectly. You just like Tommy, <laughs> just like pitched it low ball, and just like Norm's like in a point where the ball's gonna go and just knocked it right. I out. totally did that on purpose. The Segway show, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, that's actually a really good. That's a good point, Tommy. And, you know, ironically enough, I was just thinking that type of narrative storytelling is what could make a season five work now if it was to go back on Netflix. Obviously, the actors have aged. Obviously, time have, you know has passed. So they could do that type of jump and say it's been, you know, eight, ten years of brutal wars with Romulans. It has taken its toll on this crew. This is where they are now. Archer, Scott Becklett clearly looks different. He's aged. It would make sense that you know he could be an admiral at this point, and other people have have progressed as well. So I think that's uh, becoming more and more of a common um, storytelling uh, device, and it makes a lot of sense.
2: Yeah, and at this point, um, they wouldn't even need like a, a setup just because it's been so long. I mean, you wouldn't yeah. need a temporal vortex or whatever. It's just you know this takes place more or less real time after where the show ended.
1: No, nah, you probably need a slingshot around the sun. <laughs> that's true. Times. We well, have to fit time travel. I mean, it's a
0: Star Trek. For Pete's sake, you have to have some type of like unexplainable <laughs> or temporal like issue.
1: Chroniton particles, or the Orb of Time. All three actually would Whoa. probably make sense too.
0: Well, calm down, Will. <laughs> He's, he, it's a little bit of snow madness. That's it is. that's kind of like it's the ice balls have gotten to his brain. And
2: see, then we can retcon the universe. You know, once you combine the Orb of Time, the slingshot around the sun, and the chroniton particles. Somehow it goes back and everything explodes and then you have the Big Bang and then boom, we've just created the
0: universe. What about red matter? Did I just blow your mind? (laughs) You did. Red yeah, true. That was that was the
2: fourth part of the equation. (laughs) That's what created the singularity of the Big
1: Bang. See, there we go.
0: One little red dot.
1: (laughs) I love how in Star Trek we've just listed four separate ways to travel in time. Yes. That's how often they do it.
0: I'm sure we're missing a couple. Uh, that's, but that's also true. That's, that's what we love about Star Trek. So one last, uh, one last subspace postcard to wrap it up. And we have Aaron Harvey on the Babel Conference asking us to talk about set industrial graphic designs on the show. And I'm going to turn this over a bit to Tommy because he's our resident expert on actually personally studying set design, costume design, production design, For Horizon. And you said on previous Warp fives, Tommy, that you've actually been your own architect and seamstress and writer and production designer. So how do you approach something like this from trying to emulate what you saw on screen, which is a certain era, the 2151 era, and trying to extrapolate that in your time frame. It's the same time frame, but I'm saying in your particular story and making sure everything looks consistent to the scrutinizing eye of a fan.
2: Well, first off, I want to say that I'm all for gender-neutral gender-neutral terminology. I don't think seamstress is gender-neutral, but mm. <laughs>
1: uh, I think how about Taylor would be, but I'm, I'm
2: okay with seamstress too.
1: Plain, simple Taylor. Huh? Yeah.
2: Taylor sounds good. Or the quartermaster, the Starfleet quartermaster. Um, ooh, that's a good one.
0: Also, to be found in the next Lower Decks episode of Enterprise.
2: Yes, exactly. Because they did mention the quartermaster a couple of times, yeah. but that we never saw or heard of him or her. But uh, set design, Enterprise, was really good. Mm-hmm. I think it's some of the best set design they did. They had you know four shows before that to, to learn from, and it made the best use of the space they had. The way they did the corridors, for example. My biggest pet peeve, hands down, with... The three shows that immediately preceded Enterprise. Every you could always tell where they were in the set, because both uh, I mean, because Voyager was built on top of the TNG sets essentially.
0: Now, when you're saying preceded, that would be Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. Right. Correct. Okay.
2: And for instance, in Voyager and TNG, it was always that curve of a hallway, and then there was a straight section at the center of the curve or at the top of the curve and down that corridor, you had the transporter room and you had the turbo lift. And if you kept going around the curve, you had, you know, the cargo, the cargo bay or the holodeck, which was either or. And so what I loved about enterprise with their set design is they made, uh, the corridors, they built them in such a way where they could have actors walk around them in different routes where it actually looked like they were on a different deck. It wasn't always the same path of corridor. And I thought that was a brilliant piece of set design. And just the amount of, of detail that went into it, I've talked about this on the show before, where it's even things like little stickers with the part number for the piece of bulkhead that's on like every single bulkhead on the set.
0: Almost well, like a QC code or some type of Yeah, I mean like, like UPC.
2: actually there's uh, this is one of the things I replicated for my CG set. It's, it's this sticker and it has like a part number and it has, uh, like a more, uh, specific number below it. So you can identify specifically each bulkhead and probably where it was produced in Starfleet and like which yard made it or whatever. Um, it's just little stuff like that that made the sets so well made. And of course, a lot of them, uh, were were both very unique and pulled from other Star Treks a lot too. The bridge was very much harkened back to TOS where you had the offset uh, turbo lift in the corner and Mm -hmm. you had the um, helm and the captain's chair on their own platform in the center and uh, the ready room had the angled bulkheads. It was all of that stuff that was really pulled inspiration from the original series that made it look like, you, you know, maybe this could be Captain Kirk's Enterprise in the future.
0: Well, it's one of the things that I know that fans had an issue with when they first saw Enterprise was coming to grips with making that mental bridge between the Doug Drexler slash Herman Zimmerman style of design on Enterprise and the Matt Jeffries design on the original series. And remember... What they did on Enterprise was done in 2001, 2000, in production. What they did on the original series was done in 1965, 1966 production.
2: Yeah. And there's no so, way you can make that jump. You just can't. Exactly. Uh, exactly. And
0: Now, I know there are probably some listeners saying that, well, that's, that's being disrespectful. But come on. You have to really look at it from the logic of production and say, and realistically agree with, that this style... Is emulating what NASA was right. moving forward. Not the not this romanticized version of futuristic design, but this practical evolution of production design. And that's where kind of like this this disagreement. Right. Quote unquote to, to say it nicely is happening with the fans, especially when they saw it for the first time on the show.
1: That's probably one of the biggest sticking points. Uh, people accepting enterprise. I think for me it took me a little bit of uh some some thinking for me to reconcile the two because I think a lot of fans have that very initial visceral reaction and you know Christopher Jones put it best, you know, you the best way to enjoy enterprise if you just enjoy it on its own merits. And once you enjoy it on its own merits, you can then begin to tie it into the larger Trek universe, how it ties into TOS. But if you come at it from such a baggage perspective, then it's it's tough for for people to reconcile sometimes.
2: The problem is it's just it's just the nature of things. Like TNG still looks pretty good, but in comparison to JJ Trek, JJ Trek looks much more "quote unquote" futuristic. Oh, absolutely! And yeah. it's just uh. it's just the natural progression of things. And I think Enterprise they did a really good job imitating architecturally the the style. Of Matt Jeffries because I've in watching this show so many times and really studying it even down to uh, a lot of the buttons uh, on the consoles and the computer displays are directly inspired from the original series Um, they have like these slider graph thingies that are on their computer displays
1: and Travis is right there's a big well. Slide there's thing.
2: there's that, but there's also like a a digital version. It's a computer. Like it's just something you see on a monitor, and it's almost exactly right. a copy a copy of something you would see on the screens in TOS Enterprise, and so it's the little things like that that they pulled over from the original series, but they couldn't realistically take everything and. Mm-hmm. Because it's just not the 1960s. There's no, there's, there's no way around that. You look at the Lost in Space movie. They, they took things from the original series and they updated it for the movie, like using the original Jupiter 2 as the outer shell for the new Jupiter 2, which I thought was really cool. But realistically, you cannot take that 1960s Jupiter 2 and make it work today. It just it doesn't. It doesn't completely carry over. And so there's some sacrifices that you have to make.
0: Well, another jarring difference between Enterprise and then the original series and moving forward was the choice of uniform design. Now, Will, one of the cool pictures that I've seen from you on mm-hmm. Facebook is you in your formal next generation uniform. Ah, and when yes. I looked at that, I was like, the piping looks really interesting on that. And then it just dawned on me that the formal piping, at least the shoulder up, is exactly what they used on the Enterprise uniform, just that one strand of piping from the deltoid uh, around the 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 front of the chest and back, and I was like, "Wow, I didn't really notice that before." But that was an interesting kind of throwback from all the way into the next generation, all the way back, you know, to twenty one fifty one on those basically those jumpsuits, those NASA style jumpsuits. So I thought that was a really interesting design throughline from the past, well, actually the future to the past. So, Tommy, when you were researching how to create these uniforms, what was the most difficult thing uh, that you had to, that was your challenge to try and make sure that they looked screen-authentic to the TV show?
2: It would be the shoulders, actually. Um, well, what just talking? Yeah, about? Yeah, and that's the one thing that makes the uniform not realistic, I think, because it's way too complicated to... Make the uniform easily mass producible for a uh, a government organization that would be something like a military or exploration uh service like Starfleet is when you think about like what we just what your average military person today wears it's it's much more simplistic and the problem is the the shoulders are very custom tailored and it's difficult because those stripes are um it's, it's about a third of an inch, I believe, thick. And they don't sit on top of the fabric. Well, there's three layers. You have the base jumpsuit layer that's the base fabric. And then you put your stripe on. And then you put another layer on top of that. So it's not just a stripe that's sitting on top of everything. It's actually covered by a third layer. And that, wow. that all uh, goes into the seam. And so when you're sewing the front and back together and the sides of the sleeves together, you have to line up the stripes exactly perfectly and they have to be the exact same dimensions on the front and back. Otherwise, you're going to have one side of your arm with a larger stripe and the other side of your arm with a smaller stripe. And the same for the top of the shoulders. And so it's the kind of thing that's very custom tailored and still even after 11 uniforms, whenever I make one, I have to sew the shoulder and I wind up ripping it out probably at least five to 10 times before I get it just spot on accurate. And I'm sure like if I was a professional tailor quote unquote, that would be, I'd get a lot better at that, but it's the kind of thing that's just very time consuming and uh, it, it looks nice, but it's also the reason why I chose one of the main reasons I chose not to go with any of the online options for uniforms because Nobody got that right. They just took like a big piece of gold fabric and sewed it on top of everything.
0: Which, when you say online, do you mean like the cosplay yeah, vendors yeah. that, on eBay?
2: Yeah. And that looks terrible when you just take like a big gold piece of fabric and sew it on top of everything. Which is why I understand why they did it the way they did in Enterprise because it looks really nice to fold everything into the seams and what have you. And the other big challenge was all the zippers. There's 13 zippers on one uniform. And that is really time-consuming to sew all those zippers.
0: Do you think that they've actually justified on-screen using every single pouch <laughs> on that uniform? I've only seen really used for two.
2: Yeah, I don't think that. Honestly, they have used all of them. And the strange thing is, some pockets have two zippers. Like,
1: <laughs> who? They're kn- called auxiliary zippers. Yes. They're it's redundant. If your main
0: zipper doesn't hold the auxiliary zipper, right?
2: I mean, like, I actually know why they did it on like, for instance, on the left hip pocket, they have one on the inside of the hip facing your right leg and they have one on the outside of the hip facing away from you. And I think that's so you can open that outside one and put your hands in your pockets. Now, what I would have done was I just would have put that outside one on there and not even had the interior one. That's just me. And that's, once again, the kind of thing that I think from like a military production perspective they probably would not have put, you know, two zippers on one pocket. And you, for instance, like the, the top pocket on the top right is really deep, but the zipper is quite small. So there's no way you'd be able to really get your whole hand and arm down in there if you put something small in there. So it's little things like that, but they do look really nice.
1: That's really fascinating. Tommy, I would have never realized all those details, uh, that you just mentioned, you know, obviously from, from watching the show, have you, how did you learn all of this? Was it trial and error or did you at all have a chance to interact with some of the production designers or someone that actually made the particular enterprise uniform? Cause I feel, I feel like with the enterprise uniforms, they're still not as well known or recognizable as the TNG or the TOS uniforms. And they're so different in design. So was there someone that really, that you could be a re- like that was your resource that knew all these ins and outs. Well, there's
2: uh, a forum called the 1701 First, like the 1701st, or I don't, I don't even think you could say that technically. But uh, and there's a guy in there who basically did a trial and error process of making his own uniform, and I don't know if he's a professional tailor, but he's clearly quite good, and he documented the whole process. And so I was able to follow along with that pretty closely, and it was incredibly helpful because he had tons of close-up pictures, and he uh, contacted some people who had screen-used uniforms, and he posted really close-up pictures of those, which was very helpful, and it's one of the things that made me sewing an Enterprise uniform as the first thing I ever sewed a lot easier. Uh, but in terms of like actual production staff, like I never talked to that guy or anyone from the production staff. I just kind of trial and errored my way through the whole thing. And that's why the first two uniforms were actually absolutely terrible. And it's why the captain's was the fourth uniform that I sewed. And it did not fit him well at all uh, below the belt if you know what I mean. He was very uncomfortable. And so I had to make him one and that a second one, and that wound up being the fifth uniform. So there was definitely a long process of uh, of figuring things out before I finally was able to get my own process down.
0: You know, one of the last things I wanted to talk about in terms of design from the Enterprise era to the original series era is the progression of ship detail. And I have a theory about this, and actually the Axenar short film, Prelude to Axenar illustrates this in a little bit of a manner. There is, a, there is an obvious different look between the Doug Drexler NX-01 and the original series Matt Jeffrey ship. But when you take a look at what's happening in J.J. Abrams' movie and in Prelude to Axanar, there is kind of like a hybridization of what's happening there in terms of just the superstructure and the way that the textures are being used and being mapped on the ship. And in the history of Axanar, Alec Peters and Christian Gossett wrote a section of the history dealing with the Arcanus Campaign. And in the Arcanus Campaign, a majority of Starfleet ships were destroyed. I believe it was 17. So somewhere along the line, that design style of ship was obviously Torn apart and studied and improved upon and redesigned, and the next phase of ships had to be created, which would be the Ares class, the type of ship that would be able to take on the D6 in war. And you start seeing a hybridization of design from the Drexler style to the Jeffrey style. You're seeing less panel work, you're seeing more smooth hulls, but the nacelles are still somewhat similar. And then finally, when you start getting towards the end of the Four Years' War, the ships are starting to trend more towards the Constitution class because that's one of the pinnacle story moments as seen in Prelude to Axonar, and you're getting closer to the Jeffries style. So I thought that was a really neat, very respectful way of trying to bridge the design continuity between the Enterprise that you saw in, say, like, A Mirror Darkly, sharing the same space with, or at least the same screen time, at, in terms of the editing, as the Defiant, which is a Constitution-class ship, from the 1960s era. To me, that makes a little bit more sense than just jumping from 150 years of this look to the look of the TOS ship. And I thought that the fans may want to take a look at that when it comes to trying to at least make a little bit of sense when it comes to uh, the design jump between such huge contrasts of style.
2: I I just want to, like, just my quick little soapbox. I think fans, or people in general would find that their lives would be much easier and much less stressful if they just assumed that everything in the original series looked at least like the motion picture. Like, just, just erase what the original series actually looks like in your mind and assume that it at least looks like the motion picture. And everything,
0: or except the JJ style, more well, possibly? that.
2: But I mean, like at least, like with the motion picture, you had you started to have a more realistic take on the Enterprise. You know, yeah. you didn't have the really skinny Nacelle pylons that were completely unrealistic. The hull wasn't completely smooth. There was detail, and of course, these are things. You know, the smooth hull was a budgetary concern, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, which is why I think it's just easier. To suspend your disbelief in your mind and say and not try to cross this gap between a very high budget TV show like Enterprise to an incredibly low budget cardboard sets TV show, nineteen sixties TV show like the original series. It's just mm-hmm. storyline wise, it's it's the approach that they should have taken that they originally took with the Klingons. Obviously everybody knew it was a makeup change and we just didn't talk about it. You right. just pretended that they had ridges when you watched the show until Enterprise very cleverly covered that topic, and I think that's much easier to do than retconning the designs of the ships. But that's just my opinion, and I'm sure a lot of people will hate me for it. But uh, no,
0: I think that's that, that's a valid point, and you know what? We could. I would actually like to expound on that point a little bit more in a full episode because there are situations where we're going to have very strong opinions about. Fans never wanting to see any change in a certain way, and other fans saying that the only way for the series or the genre of Star Trek to survive is to change. Obviously, that hot button was probably no more present than in J.J.'s 2009, and even more so in Into Darkness when they were emulating more of the Star Trek... Well, Star Trek to The Wrath of Khan. I mean, let's be honest about it. So, But I'm that's... Yeah, I mean, go ahead, Will. I just
1: want to interject one thing is, mm-hmm. I think it's I think it's really ironic that you see a lot of uh, fan productions and a lot of fan films. A lot of them have, I think, far and away, TOS is the one that's replicated the most. New Voyages, Phase 2, Star Trek Continues. Obviously, that comes from a place of nostalgia for the original series, and it started everything else. But there's also a part of me that realizes the reason why those fans... Use TOS and the bridge sets and the original Enterprise as a setting is because it's a lot easier to yeah. replicate that bridge and that setting because it's a lot simpler to build because back then it was a simple construction. Those buttons were were simpler. They were a lot of them were cardboard. A lot of them were things that can be quote unquote done on an amateur level. That's mm. why you don't see a fan film TNG bridge. You don't see you know. Yeah. I mean, that's why what you're doing, Tommy, is so impressive. A fan film or a Enterprise, prominent. right?
0: You know, or Deep place Mind Promenade. Or d Space right. M- Exactly.
1: So, yeah. you know, it's a combination of nostalgia. I get that. I don't want to take that away from those productions. But at the same time, it's so much easier from a production standpoint to recreate the TOS bridge than, you know, uh, the Defiant, the US's Defiant, or mm-hmm. the NCC, the Galaxy Class, the D, right? It's just so much easier. And the same yeah, with every other it,
2: part of the ship, too, from the corridors to engineering to sickbay. Yeah. It's just so yeah. much simpler.
1: Yeah, so I think there. I think a lot of people. It's a you know, you're right, Tom. I think people just really have to find that balance where they, they only can take it up to a certain point. You know what I mean, the, you know, there's there's fun to be had in terms of, you know, filling in gaps, but at, at a certain point, like, you can only do so right. much, right?
2: And I think this is why, like, it's the one complaint you don't usually hear about JJ. Like a lot of people complain about JJ, but I don't usually hear complaints about, uh. It doesn't look like Star Trek technology because everybody knows that it's an update. It's a reboot. They change things for present day. And mm-hmm. we we accept that for what it is. And, you know, honestly, it's probably an unpopular choice. But if I was the one making like in a movie out of Inner Mirror Darkly, I, I probably would have updated the Constitution class a little bit.
1: Ooh, that's a... I it's probably old opinion there, Tom. Because
2: I I know it is, but it it just they did a good job with the lighting. Admittedly, making it look a little bit more modern. But
0: well, that's our next show. By the way, <laughs> we got to do that show. No, it's a about, it's a great topic for conversation. Yeah,
2: I I agree, and you know, I could talk about this endlessly. So I, in in interest of time, I will let it go. I'll get off my it soapbox. Was,
0: now, let's bookmark that because I really do think that that's an important thing to talk about. Um, and why wouldn't they have made that choice? Because I know Manicota wanted to respect the fans, but it would have also been a really interesting decision to have at least upgraded it in some fashion just to maybe fit it into the Enterprise universe a little bit more. But that could have really burned a lot of bridges there. Yeah, so, I mean, it might not but,
2: have worked on the TV show. But I think if it were a standalone movie, it would be a much more acceptable choice.
0: Bookmark that. Yeah, yeah. we're definitely going to talk about that later on. So, But um, thank you, everyone, for sending in your subspace postcards. And I'm sorry that we weren't able to get to all of them, but I assure you that there are still great ideas out there that we'd like to talk about, and we will definitely get to them in future episodes. But before we go, I would like to take a little bit of time here just to acknowledge and pay respect to one of the greatest figures, not only in Star Trek, but in science fiction history. And that is Leonard Nimoy and his character, Mr. Spock, who are, in some people's minds, one and the same and interchangeable. In the minds and hearts of the fans, he is a legend to us, if not a great source of inspiration and just very important humanitarian greatness. I'm not even sure how I can keep throwing on more positive adjectives to describe Leonard Nimoy. So I'm going to let Will and Tommy and, and I just take a moment and express how we feel about Leonard because to me, I just can't imagine a world... Of Star Trek without him and I'm not gonna belabor the point because I know that in other Trek FM broadcasts Christopher Jones is probably going to do this at length but if I could sum up my feelings about Leonard Nimoy it would be his famous quote and it would be I have been and always shall be your friend and for my feeling towards him it's like I have been and always shall be your fan And that's about as much as I can say about that without just taking this to a completely different personal level.
1: Yeah, I think for me, what I was thinking about earlier today, and it's been a lot to process. uh, I actually found out when I got back from lunch, uh, my boss told me directly, you know, he said, condolences. I said, condolences for what? He said, didn't you hear? You know, Leonard Nimoy passed. And, you know, when I went online, you know, my newsfeed, was just exploding and it still is exploding hours after the fact and it's you know it's still taking time for me to process but as I was thinking about it earlier today I almost I I, I literally can't think of another character in Star Trek even more than Kirk even more than Picard Spock is really the most identifiable character in and outside of Star Trek fandom you know my mother-in-law knows live long and prosper. She knows the salute. She knows the Vulcan pointy ears. They are the things that you say probably next to you know, be me up Scotty, which you know, that was actually never said in the in the TV show, but you know, live long and prosper. All of those things are those those things that have crossed over into the mainstream consciousness. And when I'm trying to explain Star Trek to someone that knows nothing about Star Trek, you know, those are one of the first things I refer to is live long and prosper you know, the Vulcan pointy ears, people understand, like, oh, Mr. Spock, I get it. And, you know, he has that outsized influence, and within Trek, I don't think any other character, uh, aside from him, has had an impact across so many iterations, right? So TOS, and then he was Unification in TNG, and then he was in the new reboots, and he has been in every crucial phase every next generation if you will every next iteration and I think it's just amazing the fact that he's really had such an arc as a character considering that he wanted his character to die uh, initially in Wrath of Khan and yet his character has just grown so much since then so you know for me it's really tough to imagine a world with uh, Star Trek without Leonard Nimoy and, you know, I think we were always fearing that they that this day would come, but we never thought it would come. Um, but for me, my line that I, I will always remember or always will take, uh, into, uh, take to heart is M- Bones' statement to, to Kirk at the end of Wrath of Khan is, you know, he's really not dead if you remember him. And that's very true. I mean, I think that's probably one of the biggest things you could take away for for life in general is that the things that we love and cherish as long as we remember them those people and those things they'll always be there so you know for me it's you know it's a lot to process
2: so it's hard to say anything that hasn't already been said by you guys or by the fandom or anything that isn't just typical and I had this problem when I was writing on the Horizon page, too. I wrote, you know, like a brief condolences kind of message. And it I, it's interesting because Captain Kurtz, Star Trek, and the people in that cast were not the ones that influenced me the most. But typically when celebrities pass away, it doesn't bother me that much. But I found myself, like, actually choked up like almost wanting to cry when I heard the news and you know they they are these people and these characters that will always be with us and and changed uh, a lot of lives Star Trek has changed my life a lot for the better and it may not have been the cast of the original series that did that but it was the cast of the original series that allowed that to happen and Spock. I mean, Spock has always been uh, one of my favorite characters, and Leonard Nimoy, I think, was a tremendously talented person. He was a really good photographer, and he was a really great actor. Um, spoiler alert for anybody who's planning on watching Fringe. Uh, that was on, actually that's one of the only things extensively I've seen him do other than Spock. And it was tremendous. It was nothing like Spock. It was it was a great role, and eventually he became the villain in that show. And I've never seen Leonard Nimoy play a villain before, and uh, that he did such a good job at it. And so um, I don't want to belabor it too much, because I think we have uh, a tendency to there. I, I guess there's a lot of people that that deserve to be missed as well, and I think. Spock would be the first one to say we should give equal memory to everyone. And so Leonard Nimoy lived out that character. It seemed to me as somebody who didn't know him personally, but saw the, the, the public image of him, he seemed to live out that character in his real life. And I respect him a lot for that and for the work he did.
0: One last thought. And just some, on an upbeat note, if you want to see an awesome episode of TV that has a very young Leonard Nimoy, a very young William Shatner, and Colonel Clink in the exact same episode, watch the original Man from U.N.C.L.E. season one, The Project Strygas Affair. And that will just absolutely lift <laughs> your spirit because... It's just amazing that they did this before they were even on Star Trek together, which was fantastic. So thank, th- thank you, um, Tommy and Will, for, for your respectful and poignant thoughts on, on the passing of Leonard Nimoy. We will miss him. Uh, he will always forever be in our hearts. And as long as we continue to discuss Star Trek, his memory will live on. It's been simply amazing discussing all of these great topics that have come in for subspace postcards here in the conference room. But this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. This episode isn't very good, but <laughs>
2: are we just going to pin all of our <laughs> choices <laughs> You pretty much have to. But the thing about this episode, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, I think, is
0: it's a crazy idea. Earl Grey. Picard, can you construct a, a rudimentary lathe?
1: Go for a tweester. <laughs> it's an energy being. It doesn't have a vulnerable spot. <laughs> Get off the line before just...
0: The Orb.
2: Or we could just blame it on Janeway somehow, you know, that she it's scared fault, the yeah. Borg into the gamma quadrant because they were tired of dealing with her in the delta quadrant i don't know
0: to the journey because this is the dangers by the way kids of having uh, babies in the 24th century because if kathy's first word was coffee and she was standing next to the replicator the next thing you know you have a hyped up two-year-old the ready room well, it's kind of like, you know, you've got your lucky shirt when you're watching a football game, and your team won when you were wearing it, so now you have to wear it every time. That's also the Enterprise insignia. That's the insignia of the only ship whose crew didn't die. Yeah. So just wear course, it on the
1: right color shirt, that's all. That's right.
0: Commentary, Trek stars.
1: And then he turns to her and he says, who, who is that man that I was just hugging? And she says, that was William Shatner. And he's like, who? Literary, Treks.
2: Well, you know, I'm, I'm really a, a fan of a lot of you know, different kinds of you know, naval fiction. Uh, you know, I, I, C.S. Forrester, Horatio Hornblower,
0: those novels. So um, good. Yeah, you know, Patrick O'Brien, uh, you know, the, the Master and Commander books. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, these are all things which sort of put me into the right mindset. The 602 Club.
2: So when we come kind of to the story here, and especially off of doing literary treks where we talk about Michael Pillar's book, Fade In kind of got behind the scenes of of insurrection and really seeing how the that story changed to me it really just exemplified
0: the importance of story in a movie and that's what else is happening on trek.fm check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the star trek universe and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're an apple user be sure to hit the subscribe button that helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. Now, I'd like to take a moment here to read a couple of five-star reviews that have come in for Warp 5, and I can't even express how grateful we all are here in the conference room to read these because it's reviews like these that just make our job here even more satisfying because we love bringing all of this content here at Warp 5 to you. 49 er Faithful says... If you're an Enterprise fan or a Star Trek fan curious about Enterprise, I would greatly recommend this podcast. It used to be hosted by Christopher Jones, founder of Trek FM, but since December, Norman C. Lau has become the main host, and he's done a great job. The last few episodes have been about introducing the series to newcomers, and the topics of conversations have been excellent, up to the standards of other Trek FM podcasts. The last episode focused on a character who was only in the series for maybe three episodes, but made a lasting impact, Kelly Waymire. It's still sad that she passed away so young, but the episode was a very nice tribute. Thank you so much, 49er Faithful, for that. That means a lot to us, and we did love doing that show about Kelly Waymire. Also in the reviews, by Professor James Robb, five-star rating. Thank you so much. Good podcast. Will brings a ton to an honest discussion of enterprise. So, Will, little shout-out for you. And that's pretty awesome. And, of course, we can't thank Tommy enough, obviously, for his involvement with the show because he also brings all this great enterprise content and trivia to us on a weekly basis when he joins us on the show.
2: I really appreciate you saying that for me, even though it wasn't in the review. <laughs> makes me feel special.
0: Oh, well, you were there for, for Kelly's and you were there for everything since we started the year and before with Christopher. So, you know, we love having you on the show and you're always welcome here in the conference room and in the decon chamber when we get back there when Flocks right, actually right, us
1: back in. <laughs> I still love the fact you say the conference room. It's like saying <laughs> next time in the kitchen. The conference room, right?
0: So if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's patreo dot trekfm, You'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com trekfm. I would also like to say a special thank you to our associate producer for Warp 5, Floyd Dorsey. Thanks, Floyd, for all your support for the network through patreon.com. And you can find Floyd on the Babel Conference, Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at the network on Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar page on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. You can also contact us through Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, facebook.com slash trek.fm. And as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference type... The Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, or go to our website at Trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Now, Will and Tommy, we've had a great conversation today, and I would love for the fans to be able to get in touch with you just in case they have any questions or would like to give you any feedback, or even you, Will, to get more content as content coordinator for future shows for Trek.fm so, and Warp 5. So please tell all of our listeners where they can find you across the internet.
1: Well, they can find me at Twitter uh, at at will underscore win. uh, It's spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. I'm always on there. I'm also always in the Babel Conference, which is Check FM's dedicated Facebook listener group. And we have some really great discussions in there all the time. And, of course, as Norm mentioned, I'm the content coordinator. So just drop me a line if you feel like there's something we should cover in the future across all the shows. So look forward to hearing from you.
0: And Tommy, how about you? How can our Facebook fans and listeners across the interwebs get in touch with you?
2: Well, uh, when I'm not in the conference room, uh, <laughs> you can find me. Uh, I'm I'm the main poster uh, on the Star Trek Horizon Facebook page. It's, that's pretty much the easiest way to get in touch with me. Um and that's facebook.com slash ST Horizon, or you can find it via searching on Facebook for Star Trek Horizon. Uh, I also do the Twitter, but not too often. And my, my Twitter name is Tommy G Dog, uh, T O M M Y G D A W G.
1: And he has another account, Tommy Doggy Dog.
2: <laughs> As Chris always likes to say. As
1: Chris always
0: says.
2: Yeah. No, actually, it's Tommy G Doggy Dog. Oh, my bad. Yeah. Tommy
1: G, That's Dr.
0: the Section Dark. 31 account, right, yeah. so we don't really talk about it too much on the air. <laughs> Thanks, guys, so much for, for participating for today. And, uh, Will, we have definitely got more content to talk about, so make sure that you get those notes, and we can just continue the discussion offline and for future shows. So before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor, who helps us bring Warp 5 and all of our shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have time for. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com/trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com/trekfm and we thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise Orbiter will carry more than 100 student-designed science experiments into space, and you can help make it happen. Visit enterpriseinspace.org to find out more and get your seat on the mission. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network or on the Babel Conference. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau, that's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And I'm also a proud supporter of Alex Peters and the Axenar Project. And you can find me on the dedicated Axanar fan group page on Facebook. And lastly, I am a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon. And I'm an associate producer of four shows here on the network. Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axenar, the official Axenar podcast. So thanks everyone for listening and join us once again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5.